0: It was just amazing to me that the universities shut the doors, told all the students to go home, and refused to give them back any of their money. Our position is simply you did not provide to us what we contracted with you to provide. And what we contracted with you to provide is a high touch residential on-campus college experience. It's what you advertise and it's what I paid for.
1: Welcome to the Tip the Skills Podcast where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, President and Co-Founder of LawRank. Today I am joined by Andre Regard. And we talked about so many things. We kind of jumped around, but we talked about the Inns of Court. I had never heard of this. Catholic monasteries and a little bit about the Catholic institution. We talked about mental health. He has a class action lawsuit because of COVID and how the universities were shut down. Super fascinating case. It was a really fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate it. All right, tell us your name and title.
0: I'm Andre Regard. I'm the owner of Regard Law Group based in Lexington, Kentucky, and I've lived there for about 20 years. I'm originally from South Louisiana.
1: And what type of law do you practice?
0: Traditionally, we've done business litigation. We do a lot of contingency business litigation work, and we also have uh, some specialty work we do in the equine industry with the horses oh, wow. and some work in the bourbon industry.
1: But you're trying to shift to PI.
0: Correct. Over the last couple, I mean, historically, episodically, I've done some PI here and there, but over the last year and a half, I've really made an effort to try to build out a PI practice.
1: And how's that going?
0: Slowly but surely. Pretty competitive market space.
1: It's super competitive everywhere.
0: We tried some other stuff. We did a couple of nursing home cases, didn't really care for that very much, but we are doing some medical malpractice and some products liability as well.
1: And How are you generating PI cases? And I know the longer firms wait to do that the harder it becomes?
0: So we're doing a few things. We've tried to beef up the web page, and we've done some Facebook marketing and we've done some stuff on social media. We've also really tried to do a deep dive on our uh, database of past clients just to let them know that we are doing PI type work. It's amazing to me when you talk to a client that maybe you're helping them on a business case and then they tell you about some sort of accident that somebody in their family had or something like that and, and you tell them, well, you know, we do that and they don't even know you do it.
1: I'm surprised because I feel like most... People think lawyers handle all sorts of cases.
0: If you're their business attorney, they don't think of PI attorneys as doing business-type litigation and business-type work. While most of our practice is business litigation, we also do business transactional work as well, so purchase and sale agreements and fundraising agreements and things like that. So it's a, it's a pretty sophisticated business practice. So most of those folks aren't thinking that you're doing other things.
1: So what is this love for bourbon that you have?
0: We're going to get into bourbon. Okay. Just so, very briefly. very briefly. Very briefly. Living in Kentucky, uh, bourbon and horses. You know, That's the deal in Kentucky.
1: Did you go to bourbon of proof?
0: I have not been to Bob's bourbon on proof yet. Uh, I guess he's doing it again this year in Nashville, right? I don't
1: like bourbon. Don't hate me. So I don't know.
0: But that's okay. Yeah. I haven't been to it yet, but I, I've gotten to know Bob, and and um, he's a great guy. And we've talked. Yes. We've talked bourbon a little bit. I had a client who came up to me about five years ago. He's a state senator, and he had come across a lapsed bourbon brand, and he asked me if I could help him trademark it. And rather than just be his attorney, we had a discussion, and we became partners. Oh, wow. So I now own a bourbon company. It's called Kentucky Senator Bourbon, and we've just done our fourth release.
1: So yesterday, you and I were chatting about something I've never heard of, and I thought it was just because I wasn't a lawyer, but you said it's not a super common thing. Can we talk about it?
0: So in England, you're either a barrister or a solicitor. So a barrister is a litigator. Okay. And a solicitor is a person that's more public-facing. Okay. So solicitors give legal advice, and they usually deal directly with the client and take instruction from the client. My experience in dealing with uh, some international law issues is Law is practiced very differently in England than we practice in the States in the sense that you, you you have a lot more exchanges with your clients of giving advice and getting specific instruction. In America, we tend to get a case and we kinda of run with it. Obviously we deal with our client to keep him informed, but we sort of set up the strategy.
1: Well, isn't that the law? Like you're supposed to set the strategy, right? Like the Correct. client cannot dictate the strategy.
0: Well, the client should be advised of what the strategy is. Right, the but they can't tell
1: you, hey, do this, this, and this. Object here. don't.
0: No, they can't tell you that right. kind of stuff. Well, okay. I'm, just, I'm talking about the, the general strategy. Okay, this is what we're going to do next in your case. In England, they give very specific instructions.
1: So what's the rationale behind that?
0: Having been in the military, I'll use that as an example. The, uh, you know, One of the big things about the United States military versus the European militaries is European militaries are very top-down. So you're very a lot of instruction from the top. So I think that's the way a lot of things are done in England, based on my experiences. Is that it's very instruction and directive oriented, Hmm. while like in the U.S. military, one of the things they're famous for is lower level enlisted people can make very specific decisions themselves. So let's use this as an example. You're in a conflict and you tell a soldier go capture that hill. In the United States military, those soldiers will go capture that hill. Now European Military situation, it's going to have very direct instruction from the top down on every step of the process. I find they kind of do the same thing in the way they practice law. The second part is you have a solicitor. If you're going to go to trial, then you have to get a barrister. So when you watch the movies, the folks with the wigs on, those are barristers. Okay. So barristers specifically do litigation. Okay. So they're the ones who have crossed the bar for litigation. So a solicitor uh, will deal with a client. It could be transactional work, real estate work. That's all fine. But if it's going to be a trial, the solicitor engages a barrister.
1: I kind of like that.
0: So think of the way medicine is practiced. Mm -hmm. Your primary physician is going to do all your diagnosis. But if you have to have surgery, you're going to go to a surgeon. And yeah, that surgeon hurts. may not know the ins and outs of your illness and your disease, but that surgeon knows how to cut out the problem. The barristers know the process of going to court. They know the objections. They know the rules of procedure. And obviously, they'll get up to speed on your facts. But they're not working the case. Right. So like in the States where as a general attorney – The case is going to come in and we're going to work the whole case. We're going to work it from intake through discovery, through trial, same lawyer the whole time. Right. In England, it's not done that way. You have a barrister. In order to be trained as a barrister in England, you have to be a member of an inn, I-N-N. And there's four Ns. Okay. And the Ns go back to the 1600s. Okay. So when King Charles II was put back in power after they had a, a, a civil war, he helped to establish the Ns. And it was training grounds for all of the barristers. So all barristers have to belong to an inn, and then they do a mentoring program, and they learn how to be a barrister. Okay. So it's a fraternal organization also. So like if you've seen Harry Potter, yes, uh, the dining scenes in Harry Potter mm-hmm. were filmed at the inner temple, which is one of the four inns in England. Got it. Because they all have these dining halls and they have they have lunch together and all the barristers are in there and dinners and whatnot. The ends are all around the halls of justice. So if you, if you went down Fleet Street towards St. Yes. Paul's, you go by the Bank of England, you'll have the Justice Center and the ends are kind of around it. It's really neat If you come out of the Justice Center and you cross Fleet Street. It's literally a door that you go behind and it's a whole nother world.
1: How do you know so much about this?
0: I had heard about it uh, years ago. My, my father was a, was an attorney. Okay. And he, he uh, had a friend who was an attorney in England, and he went to some dinners at one of the inns in England. Oh. And he loved yeah. it because it was all top hats and tails. And when he was being introduced, the doorman hits his stake on the ground, bam, 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 and he goes, Mr. and Mrs. Regard from the Farmer Colonies. Hmm. So that, that was pretty neat. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court, one of the justices, he went to England for an event and he kind of became aware of the fraternal organization, the fraternal nature of the ends as well. So not only is it where the barristers reside and many of them for years, all of their offices were only in the ends. Now, some of the barristers will have offices throughout London, but basically all of the barristers in England are pretty much focused in London. Because they have to be associated with an act. So not only do they have this training ground where they learn how to be a litigator, they also have the fraternal aspect because they're eating together, they're taking meals together, they're spending time together, and you're literally litigating against the person that may be in the office next to you. Mm. And you may be on a trial together one day, and you may be on a trial against each other the next day. Another interesting thing is the prosecution office, the barristers for the prosecutors or members of the inn. So you could be a prosecuting barrister in the morning and in the afternoon you can be a defense attorney. Your job is to be an expert at litigation. It certainly removes the emotion as yeah. it relates to the client because you're, you're, you're putting on the evidence that's been presented to you by the solicitors for the trial for the judge or the jury.
1: Well, and you learn to think about it in both ways, right? Correct. Like you learn to see things differently and then probably makes you a little bit more open-minded versus I'm um, just defense, defense, right? Mm-hmm. Or the other way around.
0: I would agree with that.
1: Yeah. I, I kind of like that. Inter- this is all very interesting. But okay, how does that tie into the States?
0: So the way it ties into the States in the 70s, they decided to bring this concept to the States.
1: I've never heard of this.
0: But it's not a mandatory process. Right. So there's about 75 inns. They're called inns. Okay. There's an organization called the American Inn of Courts. Okay. And that's in D.C. And that's the mother organization. And then you set up these inns throughout the country. And a lot of them, almost all of them, are near a law school. So you have four groups of people in the inns. You have the pupils. Those have to be people that are in law school. So, for example, our inn has about 120 members. So we have 10 pupil members. And then you have about 35 associate members. That's one to six years of practice. And then you have about 35 barristers. And that's seven to 15 years of practice. And then you have, we have about 35 masters. Now, Ns are all going to be structured that way, basically. Okay. The masters are the permanent members of the inn. So once you're a master, you're in the inn until you decide to quit. Okay. Barristers and associates and pupils change every year. Okay. Or could change. Okay. So the whole idea is that the seasoned litigators in your community are going to bring in other litigators so that y'all can learn to be more civil to one another. Hmm. It, it, the driving force is civility. Got it's it. Civility, ethics, and mentoring.
1: Now, how many PI lawyers are part of these inns?
0: In Kentucky where I live we actually have 3 ends. We have one in Lexington because of the University of Kentucky, one in Louisville, and one one in Northern Kentucky. We have 8 meetings during the course of the year. Mm-hmm. And so we have our group is broken up into 8 groups. For each meeting, that group has to put on a presentation, something about the law. Okay. But what it does is it allows law students, the pupils and and very and new practicing attorneys to interact with judges senior practitioners, and it really gives them an opportunity to do some mentoring and learn from these people.
1: Are there inns in every state?
0: I don't know the answer to that, but I would assume there are. There's about 75.
1: It sounds like a great networking opportunity. There's
0: so a lot of people that hire other people that they met in the inn. Yeah, it makes they're, perfect they're sense. Building in their practices. But for example, at our inn, we have, well, currently our state chief justice is a member. Uh, we have two court of appeals judges. We have a sixth circuit judge we have some federal judges so imagine you're a law student or you're one or two or three years in practice and now you get to go to a dinner eight times a year where you get to meet these judges or these senior practitioners right it's a real opportunity to learn from them but also to get to know them because there's a lot of sidebar going on there's a lot of I got to meet that that law partner at that firm or that firm owner or that judge and now I know them and if I have a question obviously you're not going to call a judge about a case but you may have a question about practice or something in that area you now have a resource you can reach out to. So it's really really good in that way but it's also really focused on encouraging civility. I think being a lawyer is a very difficult job because unlike a doctor where if you have an illness So something tragic happens in your life and you go to a doctor and everybody in that hospital or everybody in that office, their single objective is to make you better. Lawyers deal with tragedies just like doctors do. So either you've had a personal injury where you're losing something about your life. Mm -hmm. You've been injured. Or you own a business and you're losing your business. Right. And since we do a lot of contingency work, they're coming to us either as an individual who doesn't have the resources that it would actually take to hire an attorney or a business owner who often has been shut out of the business. Something tragic has happened to their business. So we do that on contingency. Where it's different than medicine is when that person comes to a lawyer like me or many of the guests you have, and we take that case on, we gather the facts, we're there to help that person somehow preserve whatever they have left, whether it's their physical health or their business. There's somebody else on the other side of the table that is trying to stop us actively trying to stop you from helping the person you're trying to help yeah it's really difficult in that fashion and because of that it, you know there's obviously advantages to our, our adversarial system in theory it creates a better outcome but it's a really tough business
1: well isn't the level of alcoholism pretty high with lawyers
0: suicide six times higher for lawyers than the general public and unfortunately in Kentucky a about two years ago, we had a rash of suicides among lawyers. It was so bad that the Kentucky Bar Association sent out a letter to everybody in, in the bar. And it was like, everybody just pause, you know, reach out to lawyers, reach out to lawyers, you know, check on them. We're, we're adversarial, but we have to have civility towards one another. And you have to appreciate that everybody has life. You know, life is going to get in the way of everything you do. And you you need to be aware of that. You know, lawyers spend a lot of time by themselves, in their small space, focusing on these complicated problems while somebody else is yelling at them, telling them they're doing it wrong, telling them they have it wrong. And it's very stressful for attorneys.
1: And even dealing with a client, because I feel like lawyers sometimes have to, like, fight for the client and then fight with the client.
0: There's a lot of inherent conflicts in the practice of law as it relates to clients. Just take intake, for example. Oh, my goodness. The very first thing a lawyer is doing, so a lawyer whose job is to represent a client, the very first thing they're doing is negotiating with their client. Think about it. The very first thing a lawyer does with their client is negotiate a contract, and that client is not represented in that process. It's a conflict at the very beginning of the relationship.
1: Yeah, now, I mean, negotiating with lawyers, it's tough. We just don't negotiate at law rank, period. Because I would be an idiot to negotiate with like trial lawyers.
0: You know, and most plaintiffs' attorneys are just going to say we you know, we charge the industry standard. You
1: do have the savvy client that'll call ten law firms and see who's gonna give me, you know, the smallest fee.
0: Certainly in business litigation, you you'll have people go through a lot of law firms to try to figure out what the structure of the deal is gonna be. What type of representation are they I just meant
1: have? in PI, because I've seen that happen.
0: Everybody wants a better deal. Right. But if you're a lawyer, and 98% of your cases are on a 35% fee structure basis, and if somebody comes and says, well, I want a lower fee, and you agree to it, you may not put the same effort into that case. And the part that the clients don't get is, it's pretty well known. Lawyers really don't cost clients anything. And what I mean by that is lawyers will get you three to five times more than a person will get without a lawyer. And you know that because when clients come to you, you know what they were offered and you, and you hear stories of what people take a case that you may have gotten as an individual, the adjuster may have called you and said, we feel so bad and we're here to help you. And we're going to give you and your family $8,000 and fix your car. And then you walk into a lawyer's office and they're like, well, you know, let's go through the checklist of what all your problems are. And that $8,000 offer becomes a $100,000 policy limits case. That client just got eight or nine times what they were offered. The attorney got paid, but it literally cost the client nothing.
1: Right. But I think some clients are like, well, instead of them taking 30% of that, can I get them to take 20 or 25?
0: Most lawyers, I think, are going to say no on that negotiation because it's going to change the way they look at the case i think they're going to say well that case is a different fee and at the end of the day how do you value your pipeline of work because if you don't know the value of your pipeline of work how do you do anything it's like any other business well if you if you've got these outliers that have different fee structures how do you even communicate that to your staff oh well that case is only a 28% case and that's a 35% case i
1: think very new law firms might do that but most firms are going to be like no this is my fee but going back to the mental health what do you do personally to make sure that your mental health is healthy
0: i try to exercise i try to block out times of the day when i don't look at electronic devices
1: and what time is that
0: I usually try to block two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. So like maybe 930 to 1130 in the morning. And then usually in the afternoons between two and 430 or so, I just try to stay away from them. I think while we've got all these devices that allow us to communicate and there's some real advantages to that, there's huge disadvantages because every time you have to stop Your phone beeps or makes a noise or vibrates or something comes across. Every time you stop, your entire mental focus changes. And there's a recovery time that takes place. That's one thing. I try to spend time with my family. I try to leave the office and just put it behind me sometimes. I go on retreats. So I go to a monastery. I try to go every couple of years. It's in Kentucky.
1: Tell me about that. What's that like?
0: It's a Trappist monastery. It's located near Bardstown, Kentucky. And uh, at one point, there were three or four monasteries in Kentucky and a bunch of convents. It's called the Holy Lands of Kentucky. Hmm. It's all Catholic. Um, Are you Catholic? I am. It's one of the reasons the bourbon industry was developed in that area. Really? because there was a settlement of Catholics from Ireland and Scotland hmm. that went to that area, and they took their distilling traditions. And because they were Catholics, there was not really a religious prohibition against alcohol, So they were able to develop that industry in that area in the late 1700s, early 1800s. But there's a monastery there called Gethsemane. I'll usually try to go for like a four or five-day retreat. Okay. So you show up, you park your car, you turn your phone off, you walk through the gates. No phone? Not when you walk in. You leave everything. What? can you do that. Yes, you can.
1: No, but don't you get stressed? Like, what if something happens?
0: If something... If if a health crisis happened, uh huh, people know where you are. They can find. But this you. is
1: a religious retreat.
0: No, it doesn't. Well, it's at a religious institution.
1: I was raised. But I you, went to Catholic
0: school. I'm I'm a product of 20 years of Catholic. So you
1: education. were not raised Catholic.
0: I was raised Catholic. You were South Louisiana, most Catholic place in America outside of Brownsville, Texas. Went to Catholic school from preschool all the way through law school.
1: I think faith is good. I think faith I think is like the best thing ever.
0: I think it's necessary.
1: I don't think it matters like what religion or what you choose as long as you have faith.
0: And that's great that you can find something that grounds you. Right. If you want to believe there's one God, if you want to believe there's 10 gods, if you don't want to, if you want to say there's not a God, but there's a an electrical force that we all share and we're all part of and we're all sending little electrical, whatever it is. I believe I, that. <laughs> I, I, I do. I think it's, uh, everything's waves, right? I
1: Thousand percent. Everything I try to explain this to my kids, and they look at me like I'm crazy.
0: Well, think about it. Your body is made up of cells. Cells are made up of atoms. Atoms have neutrons, electrons. The amount of space that exists. If you went to the football stadium or across the river from the uh, Nashville football stadium, okay. You could put a neutron that looked like a basketball in the middle of the football stadium and the electron would be in the parking lot. The world is full of empty space and electrical pulses go through space. And that's how everything is communicated. That's how everything exists. So everything is harmonics. Everything is waves. Everything is electrical. And that's why you can think something and actually pass a thought to somebody because that's the way the world works, in my opinion.
1: I agree. I totally agree. Okay, so you go to this monastery. Yep. They take your phone. Sounds really awful. They tell
0: you to go to a room. Okay. So you're in room whatever. Okay. You go in the room and there's a very simple single bed, a little desk. It is a Catholic facility, so they'll have a Bible on it. They'll maybe have a notepad and a pen. A cross. Yeah, they'll have a cross. And at this particular monastery, every room has a a small bathroom associated with it. And it's a silent facility.
1: Oh, my God. I was going to ask you that. And I was like, there's no way. Yes. That's crazy.
0: So other than when you go check in and see one of the priests or one of the brothers, then you go to your room. And after that, you don't talk to anybody.
1: For five days? For Three five, to days. five days.
0: Three to five days. Okay.
1: And how, what's that? Like, I've never gone more than an hour without. Like, what happens?
0: There are monks that live there. Okay. Well, there's monks and priests. So.
1: And can you talk to them? No. What if you have to, like, confess a sin?
0: Well, no. Well, that's something different. Okay. okay. <laughs> you, you can go to confession. This particular monastery, there's a very famous monk that was there. His name is Thomas Merton. And okay. Thomas Merton, who died in the 60s, is now, as years pass is becoming a more and more significant theologian within the church. Okay. So St. Augustine is you know, one of the most prominent theologians in, in the Catholic Church. Somebody who writes about spirituality and religion and, and tries to communicate to people through their writings the benefit and value of being spiritual. Theology would be the application of spirituality to the religion. So Thomas Merton has become a very influential theologian because he – was not raised catholic he was a writer he had a crazy life in new york living it up and one day had an experience and decided to become a monk but he was a writer and he was at this monastery for about six years and finally he went to the head of the monastery and he said you know we all have ways that we express ourselves and i express myself through writing but i'm not allowed to communicate will you let me write so they let him write, and he wrote a book called "The Seven Story Mountain" about his religious experience, his conversion, his involvement in the church, his involvement of becoming a brother, becoming a monk.
1: What's the difference between a monk and a priest?
0: All a monk means is that you live in a monastery. Okay, so this monk, just
1: happens to be a this Catholic.
0: happens to be a Catholic monastery.
1: Okay, but I have a question. You could be a Buddhist you. monk. Oh, okay. see, in a Buddhist I knew monastery.
0: that. So you have you have religious members, and I say religious members because you're not necessarily a priest. So if, you, so if you're in a monastery, everybody in the monastery is a monk. Now, a monk can be a priest or could be another religious member if male, usually called a brother. Okay. So you can be a brother or a priest, a father or a brother. Got it. So you could be Father Bill or Brother Bill. Got it. The brother hasn't gone through all of the steps to become a priest. And there are a lot of people who belong to religious organizations who never become priests. Like Jesuits, the current Pope is a Jesuit. Jesuits historically have been a very prominent and powerful group of, in the Catholic Church who are not related to diocese, so they're not tied into the local location. But you have Jesuit priests and you also have Jesuit brothers. Now they're not monks because they don't live in monasteries.
1: Now, but there's something that just irks me about the Catholic Church and like how do you reconcile all of the stuff that they hid, like involving children? Oh, it's terrible. And even just like historically, I mean, priests used to be able to get married. And then supposedly the reason they removed that was so that when a priest would die, their property would be owned by the Catholic Church. So now they own all this.
0: That was a little cynical there.
1: (laughs) Was not it? Well, this is what I've heard. I don't
0: know. No, they removed the... Part of the theory behind priests not being married, and by the way, there are married religion, there are married Catholic priests. So you could have, let's say you were an Episcopalian priest mm-hmm. and you were married because you're allowed to be married
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you decided to become a Catholic priest,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you can remain married. There but aren't see, many of them. It, this is
1: like what I mean. But it's the theory
0: like, behind not being married as a priest okay. was so that you could focus your attention on your congregation. That was the theory.
1: I don't know.
0: Because what you said about property is, is interesting. If you become a diocesan priest, so you're a priest who is who works for the diocese and you're put in by the diocese, you do have a vow of poverty. But not all religious orders have a vow. There are some religious orders that do not have a vow of poverty.
1: But supposedly this was like back in the day, like, like way back then to like say, okay, we're gonna collect all this land basically. I don't know if it's true or not, but forget about that. Just the other piece that I brought up earlier, that's like really hard for me to want to be associated with.
0: It's difficult for a lot of people to stay associated with the church because of the misdeeds of the past. But, you know, religion's an institution. They're political institutions. They're organizational institutions, and there's a lot of organizational institutions that have really significant problems. The child abuse scandal is huge in schools as yes, well. I it's, agree. it's in public schools. Yes, it's in boys' clubs, girls' yes. clubs, the Boy Scout. I mean, it's it's in Jewish schools, Christian schools, other religious, you know, non-religious schools. I understand the frustration and 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 staying a member of that organization when they've had those th- those types of problems. So all, all you can do is hope that moving forward you can root out those problems. I I, I wish that the church had reacted differently.
1: Me too. I think everybody does. Okay, leadership in law.
0: Leadership in law. As we become more senior in our practice, as we've been practicing longer, we have a duty and obligation to the younger members of the profession to mentor them and to share with them your experience and to really look after them. There's a lot of lawyers who, who are so focused on their own practice that they often will treat other lawyers in a very uncivil manner. At the end of the day, we're all just trying to get the best outcome for our client, and as lawyers, we need to have civility so that's where i link in my leadership in the end of courts because the focus there is if lawyers know each other if you break bread with one another and you get to know them you're going to be kinder and i think it's very important to have a leadership role in that because it's imperative that we have civility in the practice of law I think that creates a better outcome for your client as well. I think lawyers, they can internalize what they're doing so much that they feel it's personal if that other lawyer disagrees with them. It's not personal. It's not my facts and it's not your facts. It's my client's facts. My client has a set of facts. I have to take those facts and apply the law to it. It needs to be impartial to it. I mean, it's adversarial and you have to advocate, but there's a certain amount of impartiality that has to take place as well. And you have, if, you, if I can't talk to the lawyer on the other side, I can't resolve the issue. I just think it's important that we give back a little bit.
1: What about amongst competitors? I feel like there's a lot of uh, frenemies in, in this space or a lot of just competition.
0: The way I kind of look at it is, is there's a lot of competition to market, right? You know, You're marketing to do client acquisition. There's a lot of competition. Right. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a pretty rare circumstance where you and another lawyer are actually talking to the same client at the same time and y'all both know it. So the competition is in the space, but it's not over a specific client. I'm a very competitive person. There's no question about it. But if I want to get more clients, I have to do a better job. I have to be better at what I do. I can't worry about what somebody else is doing. Either I need to advertise better. I need to network better. I need to practice better. Intake. Intake needs to be better. better. Uh, I have to have better outcomes. At the end of the day, you know your success is going to be based on what you produce for your clients. And they're gonna learn about whether or not you're any good. And they're gonna learn about whether or not you go to trial. You know, there were some comments yesterday at this conference that I'm at, and and I really believe it. I think as attorneys, one of the unique things that the unique thing we get to do as an attorney is go to court and try a case. That is what we do. As attorneys who are litigators, we can try cases. The other side has to know that you're willing to go to trial. You know, when you're dealing with the other side. It's not their money. It's not even their facts. They're creating an obstacle that is prohibiting your client from getting the compensation that that they deserve. And if the other side doesn't believe that you're willing to go all the way, then they're not going to offer you the value of the case. You have to be willing to litigate.
1: I agree a thousand percent. Most of our clients are litigators.
0: When COVID hit... Uh, Of course, like a lot of other people, we sat down and everybody was like, what the heck's going on? You know, what the hell's happening here? And we got involved in a lot of COVID-related litigation. I have four children and and three stepchildren. So I I have seven seven kids in my household. a lot of kids. Yeah. That must be fun. And when, you know, uh, all of the COVID restrictions happened in the the spring of 2020, I had uh, three children in college at that point. It was just amazing to me That the universities shut the doors, told all the students to go home, and refused to give them back any of their money.
1: I didn't know this.
0: So, if you belong to Fitness 24, when April 1 came around, they couldn't charge you your fee for that month because they were closed in most communities, for example. So, during spring break of 2020, a lot of the kids were at home. That's when the COVID situation changed dramatically in some states there were mandatory closures. Kentucky was not a mandatory the it was interesting the governor really couldn't close the universities because the universities have their own governing boards hmm. So while there was uh, an idea that schools should close, that decision to close, whether it was a public high school or a college was made by those institutions
1: did they all close? Even high schools, schools, everything,
0: everything closed. But if you think about the universities, unlike a high school, with the universities you pay to attend, and when students right, go to right. the universities, they pay four things: they pay, they some students pay for rooms, right? Some students pay for cafeteria plans. Not all students, but all students pay tuition. And all students pay mandatory fees. Okay. So the fees are for going to the workout area, take, participating in student government, athletic events. Those are the fees. Tuition's tuition. Everybody went home. People like to say that the students received online classes. You know, we shifted to online classes. That's not correct. They shifted to what's called emergency remote instruction. These universities were absolutely unequipped to provide education online. Okay. They also prohibited the students from utilizing the facilities that they had paid for. And they didn't refund any of the money. So we filed a class action case for the University of Kentucky, and the issue with suing a public university is they have sovereign immunity. So the public university is an extension of the state government, and you can't sue the state government for a tort. And you can't sue the state government for a breach of contract unless you have a written contract. Mm-hmm. So, for example, most states, since you can't sue the state, uh, they'll have a board of claims, which is, which is set up statutorily that you can file certain types of claims. But there are very, very strict limits on how much you can claim.
1: Yeah,
0: That's a big issue in Kentucky and I'm sure in other states as it, as it relates to malpractice that takes place in a public hospital. So, the University of Kentucky has a medical center. People don't think about this. So, so you've got private hospital A, public hospital B, state-owned hospital B. If you go in a private hospital A and the hospital commits an error or the physician associated with that hospital commits a medical malpractice, you can sue them and you can recover. The value, the full value, hopefully, of the injuries that were caused if that ambulance brings you to the university of kentucky or a public hospital and that same mouth that same exact type of malpractice is performed you can't sue them they're protected it's totally nuts and i actually tell that to all my kids i'm like unless you have a trauma event then you need to go to uk it's a trauma center
1: oh i see if you you fell
0: off the swing set and broke your leg go to the er at the other hospital
1: Interesting. Okay, back to COVID relief. Sorry.
0: All right. I paid you sixty eight hundred dollars to go to school that semester. And I and, and I also paid you six hundred and sixty-seven dollars and fifty cents in mandatory fees. Mm-hmm. And halfway through the semester, you closed the door and you told me to go home. And because you did that, our position is is you can't even prorate it's not even pro rata. Our position is all of it ought to be refunded because when you go to school and you take classes, the whole way school is taught is to get you to the end of the semester.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Right. So it's really an all or nothing proposition.
1: But what happens if a student says, a student got an A? Like they they went through the class halfway through it went virtual, but then they got an A in the class. So couldn't the could they come back and argue, well, it didn't really impact the student because
0: you are bringing up a good point, you're, and you started making the argument the universities have made. Really, part of their argument. Look at that. Part of their argument. Has, part, of their argument part of their argument has been, well, the students got a grade, and therefore, because the students got a grade, we delivered. Because they got a grade, they got a credit hour or three credit hours for your normal class. So, that if they got a grade, they got the three credit hours, and therefore, we delivered what we were supposed to deliver.
1: Was your counter argument? Was it, well, but they didn't learn the way that it was intended?
0: Well, there's a th- there's a theory called educational malpractice, and nobody wants to deal with educational mal- malpractice cases. They're, they're, they're thrown out. So you can't go and sue a college and say, you had a bad instructor, or I did not learn enough chemistry. That's called educational malpractice. Those cases are non-starters. Our position is, think of it this way. Our position is simply you did not provide to us what we contracted with you to provide. And what we contracted with you to provide is a high-touch residential on-campus college experience. It's what you advertise, and it's what I paid for. I pay to go to class in a classroom and I'm going to look at all these other materials you have that talk about the importance of being on campus and having this high touch, it's called a high touch residential classroom experience because that is part of the learning process that you're trying to get at a university. You're not just trying to get a credit hour. Now these are class action cases. So you have to keep it from a class action perspective. I've spoken to hundreds of students. When you get to a student-by-student level, which can't be a class action, but when you do that and you really listen to the stories these students have to tell, there's a reason a lot of students choose to go to a college that requires that they go to classroom. So where a student may have made an A, the number of students who flunked out or didn't make an A And because it's a class
1: action, they can't parse it.
0: Well, right. our, our position, is everybody's treated the same because you didn't provide the services you said you were going to provide.
1: Could this have been avoided if when they shut the school down, they said, hey, you can either continue, agree to these, you know. They could have done that. Or we'll refund you. They could. And then this would have been completely avoided.
0: If that had happened, that would have been avoided. But th- that's not in the financial best interest of the universities who kept all their money and paid, continued to pay all of their employees. So think about this. Everybody who worked for the university continue to get the same benefits that they got as an employee, whether it was salary, fringe benefit, they got everything they were supposed to get, but the students didn't get anything they were supposed to get.
1: I would argue that that's not necessarily true though. I mean, they got their compensation, the teachers or professors or whatever, but they didn't get to teach the way that they thought they would.
0: That's a good perspective. But the bargain that they make is we're going to teach and we're going to get paid. So they taught and they got paid.
1: Sure, but- student's
0: bargain is we're going to pay tuition and we're going to get this experience that is reflected in the registration materials that we're going to go to classrooms and we're actually going to get instruction and we're going to get the involvement of our other students. And that's part of this whole experience. No, 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 I agree
1: with that. But I still think that the professor's, did not get to teach the way that, like, would they have all signed up for this?
0: Oh, no, they wouldn't have.
1: So, no. you know.
0: Teaching online is a totally different thing. And that's why it really wasn't online classes. It's emergency emergency remote instruction. It really became proctoring. Imagine
1: my kindergartner. We literally just stopped. We were like, forget it, he can redo kindergarten. Like, it was that bad. Yeah. And we were working. So we ended up moving to Mexico because of it. We're like, let's just go where we can have a ton of help and family because we cannot assist them with this Zoom, you know. And California was like, really, they really shut down. Like, it was bad.
0: And there's a lot of issues there, you know. So, all right, you're not going to come back on campus. What do you have access to a computer? Do you have access to the internet? Are there other people that need to share that computer? When can you go to class? When can't you go to class? Are you going to learn anything? But from a macro level, think of it this way. I hire you to paint my house blue. I pay you ahead of time because I have to pay you before you come. So I give you $15,000 to come paint my house. You paint it white. And I say, well, you didn't paint my house blue. I want want my money back. And you say, yeah, but I painted it. And you've got some benefit from the fact it's painted. You know, you've got wood. Your wood's been sealed. It's painted. Yeah, but
1: that's not what I paid you for.
0: Exactly. So you agree with us. So all the students went home, and the universities didn't refund any of the money. And they took the position that we actually don't have a contract with the students. We don't have to provide the students anything. We sued the University of Kentucky first on behalf of the students. And usually in litigation, you file a case, the other side files a motion to dismiss. If the motion to dismiss is denied, you continue with the case. In sovereign immunity, if the motion to dismiss is denied, it's immediately appealable by the state. Because the whole idea of being immune from lawsuits is that you don't have to participate at all. So that was immediately appealed. And we ended up going to the Court of Appeals, which also ruled in our favor. And then we went to the state Supreme Court. So we actually got the first state Supreme Court decision of any state in America that the students at a public university actually have a written contract with the school and can sue under that contract their argument was find me one particular page that says this is a contract our position was because every university for the most part uses a portal system where you have to log in with a unique identifier and a unique password that the way a portal system is set up, the entirety of that database becomes your contract. And they've chosen to set it up that way. Hmm. So where you go and you register, once you go in and you're like, okay, I need a schedule. Well, I need to take biology 101. That hyperlinks you to another part that explains what's going on, which also hyperlinks you to the tuition and fees part that tells you what you're going to pay, and it also tells you the fees and the services you get for the fees. Right. So our Supreme Court in Kentucky agreed with us. It's called a click wrap agreement. So click A click wrap agreement. 20 years ago, when you got a new program for your computer, you actually got it on a CD.
1: Yes. So the old yes.
0: AOL CDs, it had a sticker yes.
1: on it. Yes, I'm, I'm old enough. I well, remember that.
0: If you remember, the sticker said- By- Wait,
1: I'm not old enough.
0: You just know about this. Yes, I
1: just know. I, right. I Googled it.
0: So the sticker that's on the r- plastic wrapper says, by opening up this wrapper, you're agreeing to our terms and conditions. Hmm. That's called a wrap agreement. Hmm. Well, then people started going into portals, and we, we don't put a CD anymore. You log on, and you download a program. Well, when you go to download the program, you click a box. Yes. I hereby agree to the terms and so conditions. So it's called click wrap? Now it's a click wrap agreement. I
1: didn't know that. That's cool.
0: And our argument was that the process of registering for classes is the equivalent of a click wrap agreement. Therefore, everything that's associated with the program is part of the contract. And you won. And we won. Now we're, now we're back litigating damages. After we filed the first case and the first court said that sovereign immunity had been waived... We then, there's seven other public universities. So we actually have all eight public universities. That's cases. amazing. So your
1: firm has all of us. All eight of them. How did you, it was like your idea because of your kids or how did this happen?
0: I just was sitting there and I said, this is wrong. And, and. We decided to file the first one, and then it turns out that there were other cases that had been filed throughout the country. So the reality is the closure of public education or the closure of education in America was a disaster. We know that now. There were other countries that did not close their educational systems. Japan did not. Sweden did not. The long-term repercussions from the closing of our education system in America in the spring of 2020 and to a certain extent in the fall of 2020 is going to have a disastrous effect.
1: Thank you so much to Andre for everything he shared with us today. If you found the story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way in helping others discover the show.